It's a big thing for British sports stars, film stars, bands, journalists to try and crack America. If you're a Brit, it's kind of a big deal. But while many people try and do it, most of them fail. One exception is Mehdi Hassan. He's a journalist who started his career at the BBC before moving on to the New Statesman. But today, he's one of the most popular political journalists in the United States, and he hosts a show on MSNBC. He's just published this new book, Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. And I have to say, it's a very good book written by somebody who is among the best of the best when it comes to persuasion. Mehdi Hassan, welcome to Downstream. Aaron Bastani. You made your mark in the UK in the late 2000s, early 2010s. You've since moved over to the United States. For people, the very few people who aren't familiar with your, your work, you're like a, a political megastar over there now. You're, like an MS, <laughs> you're an MSNBC host. Why did you go to the US? And, and, and tell us a little bit about this unusual trajectory. It is a little unusual, and I haven't really worked it out myself. I kind of I look back and sometimes think, how did I end up here? How did I end up there? I mean, the short story of why I moved to the US is I married an American who spent 10 years in the UK and said, I've done my time. It's time for you to do some time over there for a couple of years. So I went there for a couple of years thinking, hey, I'll cover the 2016 election. It'll be fascinating. Cover, Like many British journalists, fascinated by American politics since I was a kid. I uh, thought, go cover that and come back. And uh a, didn't come back, and B, didn't see a Hillary Clinton presidency, got lost in the world mm. of Trumpism for the last eight years, can't get the man out of my head, life, professionally, personally. And uh, I went there to do a show for Al Jazeera English. It was too good an opportunity to turn down. It was come to DC and do a weekly show about global politics. That's a dream for someone like me. Um, loved it, did it for a few years, also wrote for The Intercept, got some great opportunities to write there. And then out of the blue one day, MSNBC called me up and said, would you like to do a show? Uh, on our new streaming channel. And I said, I'm interested. Um, I never thought I'd end up working for a mainstream American media organization. You know, me with my background, politics, et cetera, style of interview. So it was an unusual fit, but both sides have made it work, I think. We're, we're both pleased with each other. I think MSNBC seem to be happy with what I'm doing for them, and I'm enjoying having that platform. But it is unusual. I, I do stand out in multiple ways. The British Muslim immigrant lefty tough interviewer in the middle of the American media landscape. Why, why do you think MSNBC came after you? It's a good question. I don't actually know the answer. I suspect I did an interview with uh, Eric Prince uh, for Al Jazeera English at the Oxford Union in 2019, I think it was, which went mad viral in the US. Actually led to him getting referred to the Department of Justice, a criminal referral from Adam Schiff and the House Intelligence Committee. So it was a big newsmaking interview. It was also done in a style that Many people in American TV hadn't seen. And most people in the American media will say that's the first time they came across me. Um, so I wonder whether it was that. I wonder whether they were looking for a different voice um, because I am very different to a lot of the people uh, who work at MS, CNN, et cetera. But what's been wonderful is, look, being a Brit in America in the media, especially on TV. Is it as good as they say? It's basically you're not Piers Morgan, right? That's the pre the precedent is uh, he he didn't he didn't leave behind. It's not it's not easy following in those bloody footsteps. So um, what's been good for me is that I've been welcomed, and you know I just I, I'm promoting this book, and I went on all the MSNBC shows, and my colleagues have been so generous and welcoming. There's been no sense of like well, you're 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 a bit different to us or different background. People seem to love the stuff I do, and that's why you know as lefties, and we might talk about you know working for corporate media, people say to me, oh, you know, have you sold out? Have you done this? Have you done And it's like, actually, I get, I, I touch wood, I've got the best, best of both worlds. I get to have this great mainstream platform, mainstream audience, and I get to still say what I want to say and hit the issues I want to hit. I hadn't heard this before. So essentially what you're saying is that Piers Morgan kind of toxified British journalists in the US for a little while, and you're, you're kind of rehabilitating it a bit. Uh, they're your words, not mine, but I'm not going to disagree with that view. I'm trying, I'm trying to rehabilitate it. But also don't forget, to be fair to Piers, he went as a Brit and came back as a Brit. I'm an American. I'm a dual national. I became a citizen several years ago before the 2020 election, which I wanted to because I wanted to vote in that election, which I saw as the most consequential election of our lifetimes. And, uh, you know, when I speak about American politics, uh, I speak we, my, our, our democracy. I have skin in the game. I care about it because my kids are American growing up in America. I care about it as an American citizen who's worried about the precariousness of American democracy. And I think that also gives me a, a separate angle and allows me to connect with viewers in a different way. Mm. And where's your wife from originally? Is that well, Texas. Oh, wow, she's a Texan. She's a Texan. And the family still lives in Texas? Yes. or So you sort of have to commute from the Northeast to Texas no, no, no. for Thanksgiving? No, and... we live in D.C. 
But right. oh, to visit the extended yeah, family. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was at Houston at the weekend doing a, a book event, which was great because I got a lot of family and friends in Houston. Houston's a great city. Uh, I didn't always think that, but I do think that now it's grown on me. Um, it's fascinating. Traveling in America is another fascinating aspect, just seeing what a vast country oh, it is and how politics different you know we talk about in england local politics versus national it's a different ball game obviously in, in such a big country is there like a little club of english people british people like do you hang out with james corden in, in bars in new york sometimes how does it work um no oh. um there may be some clubs i haven't been invited to it, as is often the case i don't get invited to many clubs but uh, there's not there like a little be... solidarity between the british expats in new york and washington and the media game well, what's interesting is that i was told that the british embassy has lots of media events political events and i don't get invited and i wonder <laughs> in dc which is i'm probably the most prominent british journalist in dc and i wonder whether that's because of uh, uh the ambassador and the government here I, I have no idea i'm just speculating but no i'm not invited to british things um, but uh, the few Brits who I do know out there are friends. We do bond over and miss Dairy Milk. Dairy Milk. You ever hang out with Adele? I don't hang out with Adele, no. no. I'm curious. I'm, this is going to sound strange, obviously, because obviously for our audience in the UK... I have met James Corden, but we don't hang out together. It's, it's, it's so, it is kind of strange that there's this humongous country with yeah. which you share a language, and, you know, 65 million people in the country, most people here, they're very familiar with American popular culture, yeah. but they don't have the relationship to it that you obviously have. And I find it, uh, it yeah, it's a really f a fascinating aspect of being British is the fact that you have this much more influential country with the same language just over the road, you that, know, that a lot of Brits, metaphorically. That a lot of Brits in our walks of life, whether you're in politics, media, arts, hot, you know, entertainment, want to try and crack. Let's be clear. I mean, this goes back to the Beatles and et cetera, et cetera, you know. Um, and it's I, it's really fascinating how I was always fascinated by, I was I was talking to Ian Dale the other day and he was saying the same thing. He said, you know, I'm one thing I'm jealous of you, Betty. You went, to, I always wanted to work in DC. And I'm, it's amazing how many British journalists have messaged me in the past saying, such a great gig you have. And I do feel blessed that Al Jazeera English gave me the opportunity to move there. And then I managed to get into MSNBC. And it's it's fascinating at a moment when American politics is crazier than it's ever been. Mm. And what I try and bring to the table is a perspective that's both an outsider perspective, um, but as I say, married with an insider interest. And I think that's given me a slight edge and it's given me a, 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 a USB. It's given me um, a reason for people to tune in. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I shamelessly take advantage of that. Why not? You've had experience of the US, UK. You've worked at independent outlets like The Intercept. I mean, Al Jazeera could be classified as that in broadcast too. But then you've also been at the BBC, you've been yeah. at MSNBC. What are the big differences between UK and US political journalism? There are a lot of differences and a lot of similarities. I think the similarities are that there is a lot of consensus forming too quickly. That's always a problem. Um, but in terms of if you're, if you're trying to highlight what I often talk about, which is interviews, yeah, the interview styles are very, very different. And I think, what, again, something that's allowed me to stand out, one of the reasons I wrote the book, is that I have a very particular, you would say, British style from an American's perspective, which is, you know, I grew up watching Paxman and idolizing Jeremy Paxman, um, John Humphreys and co. I worked for Jonathan Dimbleby, uh, some, you know, in, in, interrogators, I think it's fair to mm. say. And the US media culture isn't one of interrogators. Uh, it sometimes looks down on interrogators. We're seen as a little bit maybe too rude, too in your face, those of us Brits who do that. And I find it fascinating that two people who have stood out, especially in kind of viral moments, doing interviews in the American media are me and Jonathan Swan, who did that amazing Axios interview with Donald Trump in 2020. Mm. And he's from Australia mm. and I'm from the UK. And I think, it, I think I don't think that's a coincidence that those of us who are slight outsiders to the American media culture um, have managed to kind of make some noise. And yeah, I've, I've spoken for a while, Aaron, openly about this, both before I joined MSNBC and more riskily after I joined MSNBC, which is my peers should be doing tougher interviews. We should all, everyone in the US media needs to be doing much tougher interviews. I've always said in the past, Jeremy Paxman should have been parachuted into the US media years ago to shake things up. Uh, I try and shake things up as much as I can because some, there are some great interviews on American TV, not as many as I would like. There are some. But across the board, there needs to be tougher questions, more challenging interviews and formats, follow-ups, uh, the willingness to call a lie a lie, the willingness to call racism racism. Uh, that stuff is changing slowly for the better, but it's taking far too long. Is that because they, they sort of treat political journalism as a form of entertainment or as an extension of the entertainment industry? So it was never as adversarial as it was over here? No, or? I actually think it's worse than that. I think it's the opposite. I think that might be that a lot of people see it as a very somber, uh, almost right. solemn uh, process where right. 
you are you asking a cheeky, entertaining question because I actually do. I try and ask funny questions sometimes, entertaining questions, but that might be seen as not. You know, in the America, it's very much about the respecting the office. And then Donald Trump came along and defiled the office. Like, well, we respect the presidency, not the president. There's a sense of he's the head of state as well, which adds to the whole fact. I went on Seth Meyers' show a few years ago, and I said to him, "I said, what is wrong with this country where you you the press corps stands up when the president comes in the room? Can you imagine doing that for the prime minister in the UK? Can you imagine you know keeping your title?" forever. In America, you're governor forever. You're Secretary Clinton, 10 years after you were Secretary of State. You're Mayor Giuliani, 15 years or whatever after you were Mayor of New York. Uh, it's weird the because they're kind of fetish with titles and keeping the titles and deference. And the point I keep saying is, it is not our job to be different to people in power. This is the home of the revolution. Americans are the ones who threw out the British monarchy, right? Where did that go? Where did that spirit go? I, wonder, I, I don't want that to be crushed. I want it to be revived. Uh, one of the reasons I wrote the book is to say, we can all do this. We will be talking about the book, but, but it's important to say, this is the reason why we're talking today, fundamentally, win every argument in the art of debating, persuading, and public speaking. Um, and it runs through many of the questions, but I just wanted to really get a, a firm grip on Mehdi Hassan. You've been away for so long. You use the D word, deferential, which is what most people would associate actually with the British public sphere. So what you're saying to a UK audience is quite counterintuitive. You're saying that actually the US is much worse in this regard, whereas you know here in Britain, we like to think of ourselves as kind of constrained by cultural difference. You don't think that's the case, actually, relatively speaking. I think, uh, no, let me, relatively, let me, relatively, relatively first of all, relatively speaking, I think it's undeniable. But also let me narrow it to a particular form of journalism, which is what I do, which is political interviews. I think when it comes to interviews, it's undeniable that we have, you know, you and I might not, might not share Andrew Neil's politics, but I think you and I can agree Andrew Neil is a very good interviewer. Mm. Um, and there isn't really an equivalent Andrew Neil in America. Again, another good example, Ben Shapiro, who is this right-wing provocateur uh, in the in the United States, who, who puts up videos of himself, or his fanboys do, saying, Ben Shapiro destroys student on campus. And sometimes he does. He's a, he's a good debate. He speaks very fast. He's, he's clever. But he's deeply overrated. And how do I know that? Because once he gets out of his safe space of US media, he did an interview with Andrew Neil. And it was a car crash. He couldn't handle any of Andrew Neil's questions. He ended up calling Andrew Neil a leftist, which Neil, of course, laughed about. And then he ended the interview and then he had to apologize on social media. And that's another reminder, why did it take a foreigner to do that interview with Ben Shapiro? And again, a reminder of why the American media, we need to up our game in holding some of these people, especially that like, the right has been taken over by grifters and con men in the US. Like they need to be called out, not deferred to. But look, that's narrow political interview. If you want me to start critiquing the British press, I'm happy to. Our press corps is a joke in many ways when it comes to holding power to account. I'm in the UK the week where we spent more time talking about Gary Lineker than about the immigration policies that Gary Lineker was critiquing. Mm. That is a failure of the British press. There's no other description of that. I mean, that is bad. And you think that's something that the US wouldn't... I mean, that's very trivial. Do you think that's something... No, the that's UK, everywhere. That's a global problem. You think that's... Okay. No, that's, that's, so the, that's the UK is particularly bad when it comes to sort of trivializing important stuff. So what, what foreigners have told me, what people who are not British who have come to the UK and dealt with the British media have told me, and I sympathize with, is that, okay, these are problems that are global, but the 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 clickishness, if that's the right word, if the 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 weird that the the what's the word I'm looking for? Not mob mentality, but the way that the British press comes together and amplifies mm. things is is in a way that I think other countries probably don't have that sense of. I don't know, it's not old boys club. I'm trying to find the right phrase, but the way that the, 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 the journalists will reinforce each other's worst tendencies, I think is very British. Well, just because it's so small here as well, right? Several hundred people in London, if they all have the same take on something. Not just same take, but, you know, and I say this, full disclosure, as a private schoolboy who went to Oxford, went to the same school, same university, same social circles, that's going to have an impact. Well, that's the, and that's the bandwagon bias. It's and it's in. just London. At yeah. least the US, you could say it's spread out to, you know, bigger country. People are more spread out. It's a very narrow place. Westminster, I don't think people in this country realise just how small geographically a place uh, Westminster is. You said the rights full of grifters in the United States. And prior to that, you said Ben Shapiro is this overrated sort of orator. Is he a grifter? Because it's an often used term, but I want yes, to know it's a good question. how okay. would you delimit it? That's a good question. So I, I, I'm going to say yes and no to that question. I would say he is, he believes, I don't believe he's like a Tucker Carlson or a Marjorie Taylor Greene or, you know, all these Fox hosts who have been caught on text saying one thing in public, one thing about it. I think he actually believes right. the stuff he says. 
I'll give him that. I think he does believe his positions. So no, he's not a grifter in that sense. But he's running this Daily Wire media empire, which is all about provoking the crap out of people over fake culture wars issues. He's all over these kind of fake social media spats. And that, I think, is a grift. This pretend outrage. Like, there's a line I think the Daily Beast uses, what are we angry about today? Like, every day it's Mr. Potato Head or whatever crap issue that's suddenly the most existential threat to American conservatism. In that sense, of course, to get the clicks, of course, that's what him and his media empire do. And it's about making money. And it's working. They're making a crap load of money. It's about money. It's not about, I mean, it's obviously about the politics, but that's secondary. It's about I think so. cash. I think it is. Yeah. I think the outrage, the outrage culture. I mean, that's not, con- Edmund Burke didn't say that conservatism was about getting outraged every day about trivial issues. Like you can't say that's conservatism. That's not, that's a disrespect to whatever underlying conservative philosophy you want to respect. That is just money making. And, and the American right is fundamentally a money making operation right now. And don't take my word for it. Rupert Murdoch goes under oath, deposition says, we are not red or blue. We are green. His words. Oh, that's mine. a great line. I love it. From the horse's mouth. When you see like Tucker Carlson get upset about the fact that um, M&M's candy yeah. is being desexualized, I mean... does he, does he? Is he really angry? Of course he's not. He you don't, you don't think so? No. And now we know from the text that he doesn't believe anything. He thinks, he thinks Donald Trump is a demonic force. If I called Donald Trump a demonic force, Fox News, who already do a story... Fox, not Fox News. I don't call them Fox News. They're Fox. They do a story on me every other week, right? Their website. Well, member of the host says this. Many has that. They would go mental if I called Donald Trump a demonic force. That is what Tucker called him in a text to his producer, right? But publicly, t- Trump's amazing, visionary plan, blah, blah. I'm going to go hang out with him in his golf course. So that is a fundamental problem with some of these people. They don't believe what they say. It's all about getting the clicks, getting the views. And that is what the concern. And look, Donald Trump is fundamentally the head of the Republican Party. This is a this is a movement that is based on money, clicks, and ratings, and their leader is a reality TV star. It makes perfect sense. Let's bring this now to the book. Because the book is, it is really good. I mean, look, I, I've been in the media game a little bit. You know, I've done a TED Talk and so on. You've got TED Talks in here, so I know a little bit of it. What I really like about it is you've just characterized, categorized rather, so much, which is very intuitive to most Thank people. You. So if somebody's trying to write a best man's speech or whatever. I think it's a very good little handbook. It's not so little, but you know, it's quite big in fact. That's but, good. People keep asking me like, who's this for? I thought, best man, I add that to my list. That's yeah, well, it's best a- Best man's speech. Every- no, it, is, it is supposed to be for a general audience. I didn't write it just for like my media besties to improve their interview techniques or politicians giving speeches in campaigns. It is for the person in the job interview, the person down the pub having an argument with his mate, the person uh, who is in, you know, a lawyer in court, a businessman in the boardroom, uh, a trade union negotiator. I believe that the tips and techniques and tricks, there are tricks in there too, are, are universally applicable. But okay, so bring it back to the Tucker Carlson thing. So for instance, and I, by the way, I agree with all the things said here. I'm not disputing any of it. You say feelings, not just facts. Yes. Yeah play the ball and the man. I mean, I agree with that too. But I mean, isn't that precisely what Fox do? And that's why they're the biggest network in the country. They're, they're very good at mobilizing oh, yeah, feelings. So let, let's not mix up two different things. Is Fox good at messaging? Yes, they're brilliant. I've been, I mean, you don't tell me that. I've spent years saying all roads lead back to the right. To understand the modern conservative movement in America, to understand the Republican Party, to understand Trump, you have to understand Fox. Fox is the decider. Fox decides what to get angry about every day, which candidates going to... Ron DeSantis exists only because of Fox. He was a nobody. Fox platformed him. Today, Fox, he gives Fox great exclusives. They have a very, very intimate relationship, right? So uh, you don't need to tell me about the... Pa- I get the power and influence of Fox. And it's you tune in, you get lost. It's seductive. They have great graphics. They have engaging and heated, ridiculous conversations. But they know how to make good telly. No, no mm. argument so it's for me like there. It's like visual candy, isn't it? Yeah, you know? No argument for me there. They know how to wind people up. That separate point to what I'm saying, which is I'm saying, I'm saying you use these things. For example, you appeal to people's emotions and the right do it better than the left. Uh, I do say that in the book. And you can and you can launch ad hominem attacks. I make the case for ad hominem attacks. Some people say you shouldn't do, but I say do it. But the difference is you're doing it in service of a good faith argument. Fundamentally, the book is about good faith arguments. What Fox do is bad faith. And people said to me, oh, you called it win every argument. Why should people win? You want people to have every argument? No, I'm not actually saying that. I'm not, it's not a moral proposition. I'm not saying you should win every argument. I'm not even saying you should have every argument. I wouldn't go on Fox myself. I've turned down multiple invitations from Fox hosts. Why? Because it wouldn't be a good faith argument. I'm not going to go on with propagandists. I don't, you know, I, I don't platform racists fascists, Holocaust deniers, climate change deniers, election deniers. On my show, it's a real problem. I want to get Republicans on my show, Aaron. They're all election deniers. Me and my team are like, 
who's left that we could approach for an interview because oh, I've imposed this hygiene test. Yeah. And I don't know how long I'm going to hold it because the 24 elections coming up fast. At some point, I may have to drop it. But right now, for the last two years, I've told my guest bookers, do not book anyone who denies the election. I'm not going to, I'll argue with anyone. You know, I love arguing. I'll argue all day long. But I'm not going to argue up is down, black is white, hot is cold. I'm not going to argue reality. That is just, that's, a, that's disrespectful to your viewers, to your audience. I don't have contempt for my audience in the same way that those Fox hosts have contempt for their audience. But do you remember when Rutger Bregman went on with Tucker Carlson and like completely destroyed yeah. him? Yeah. Do you not think there's a place for that? Like it was almost like a bit of agitprop. Could you not do something like that, you know? Well, did, did Carlson run it? I don't think he did. Rutger recorded that's it. That's so true, actually. Hand. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's the, that's the problem. They control the, they control, look, here's a, here's a good point. Would you, would I debate someone like a Tucker Carlson in a neutral venue? Yes. Maybe. Maybe not, because is he, is he, is he, is he, I have an issue with white supremacy and, and is he, is he, is he an enabler? Is he one? It's a gray area. So I don't know, but definitely going on the network also gives it um, credibility. And one of the chapters I have in the book is about credibility. You don't give your opponents credibility. The Democrats have been fools to treat Fox like a news organization. The Biden administration is now coming out and starting to, Biden refused to go on Fox for their interview for the Super Bowl. First president say, no, I'm not doing it, which was a good move by Biden. Uh, Obama didn't refuse to do it, but Biden did. I don't think B Bernie Sanders goes on Fox. Buttigieg goes on Fox. And they say, well, it's a big audience. We need to address yeah. the audience. Yeah, that's what Sanders It's a ridiculous says. argument because where do you draw the line? Alex Jones has a huge audience. Why don't go on InfoWars? But I suppose the counter argument is, well, a Republican could say, well, MSNBC's fake news. I won't do MSNBC. But it's not true. I mean, there's a, we can play the both sides game, but it's not. First of all, before last week, I would have said it's not true. This week, it's ridiculous to anyone yeah. to claim that. Because as I keep saying, you can hate my views and you can hate Joy Reid's views and you can hate Rachel Maddow's views. But me, Joy and Rachel are not on a text group saying, ha ha ha, we don't believe anything we just said on air. You can hate my views, but I say the same views in private as I say in public. When this interview is over, you and I are going to have the same conversation that we had on camera. Those guys don't believe what they're saying. They are lying to their viewers. Rupert Murdoch says his hosts yeah. are lying to their viewers. So it's it's not a journalistic <clears throat> enterprise, Aaron. Rupert Murdoch handed over talking points, debate talking points, and Democratic Party ads that Fox received as a news organization and gave them to Jared Kushner. If I did that, anyone at NBC did that, we would be rightly fired. The fact that no one's been fired, no heads rolling at Fox, tells you it's not a journalistic enterprise. But do you not think it's a propaganda <clears throat> arm of the Republican Party? Do you not think a Republican could say, let's say a Republican president wins, they're, they're to the right, but they're not as just deranged yeah. and, you know, fixated with lies as Donald Trump. And they say, I'm not going to do a mad hour because of, I think the reporting around the Mueller report was not of the standard I think appropriate yeah. for public life. You know, and again, one can disagree with that, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's a coherent yes. argument. And do you not then think once you start saying that, then basically that the spaces for shared conversation where people do engage with one, with one another and disagree, yeah. they start to break down. And Agreed. The end, the end game of that's quite dangerous, isn't it? hundred percent. But the solution to that is not to give credibility to a channel that pushes white supremacy in prime time and where the hosts don't believe what they say on air. That's, it, it is an, you talk, go back to your earlier point about entertainment. Fox is an entertainment channel. It's an entertainment channel there to rile up right-wing people. That is what it exists for. And to make a ton of money for Rupert Murdoch. It is not a journalistic enterprise. And then people say to me, well, there's the opinion hosts, but then there's the straight news hosts, Brett Baer, Martha McCallum. They're now caught in a Zoom recording that New York Times got where they're like, why did we give Arizona to Biden? I know the numbers are in his favor, but we should, Trump's not happy. We should put it back in his column. Like this is straight news. Like I said, Please find me a CNN or NBC journalist doing anything similar. We all make mistakes. I'm not some blind defender of US corporate media. We all make mistakes. You don't have to like the Russia coverage. But there's no comparison with straight up propaganda, like Putin style propaganda. That is what Fox has become for Trump. Can he win in 2024? Donald Trump? Donald J. Trump. Can he win? Yes. Yes. He can win. Um, it's a two-party system. It has a ridiculous electoral college. And he doesn't need the popular vote, as we saw. He won in 2016, despite losing by 3 million votes. He lost by, what, 7 million votes in 2020 and still declared victory for himself. Uh, unfortunately, we have a two-party system. We have, uh, you know, a chunk of the country, 30 to 40% of the country, who are in an information bubble and who are hardcore right-wing partisans and will never abandon the Republican Party. You know, there's a gag during the rounds. If Satan was the Republican candidate in 50 states, he would make 50% of the vote in loads of them, right? You could put anyone on the ballot. You, there used to be a line, uh, there used to be a line about, you know, 
They'll win the vote unless they're like, I don't know, a pedophile. Republicans put people accused of pedophilia on and they still did well. They won primaries, right? So this is, this is the reality. They will vote for, they will, they will, to own the libs, the hatred is so much. They don't actually care about supporting. It's to own the libs, they'll do whatever it takes. And Trump is still a viable proposition. Any liberal who writes him off is a fool. Any Republican who thinks he's not going to win the Republican, he's not the favorite for the Republican nomination as well. You think? Mike Pence is going to beat Donald Trump? Don't be silly. You think Mike so you think Pompeo? Trump, you think he'll win the nomination? I mean, I don't do predictions anymore because I no. called Brexit and Trump wrong in 2016. Yeah, but it's but highly, look, highly plausible. Highly plausible. If, if gun to my head, what's the most likely scenario? It's Biden versus Trump. I, the, the only person who can stop Trump is Ron DeSantis. The only way Ron DeSantis can stop him is if he's the stop Trump candidate and there are no other Republican candidates, but the Republican Party's filled with egomaniacs. They're doing 2016 all over again and a bunch of them are going to run. And the middle, and the moment a bunch run, Trump wins because he plays divide and rule. As I point out in one of the chapters of the book, he destroyed 16 candidates in 2016. 16 big, big names. Jeb Bush, Ted Cruz, he destroyed them all, right? The idea that he's not going to take out a handful of like losers, Nikki Haley and Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo. DeSantis is the golden boy of the Republican Party right now. He's deeply overrated. He's got a glass jaw. Mm. Uh, he hasn't been exposed to a national spotlight. He's, he's, he's loving being the Orban of Florida. But when he's exposed to a kind of national audience, and when he's exposed to Donald Trump on stage, I mean, Donald Trump's going to just go scorched earth on him. He's going to say something ridiculous about DeSantis or his wife. And the question is, will DeSantis hit back? So far, he's not hit back. Trump, I don't know how many of your viewers are aware of this, has already suggested that DeSantis is a pedophile. <laughs> he's already done that. We, he, DeSantis hasn't even declared. Trump, <laughs> Trump has posted pictures of DeSantis' time as a teacher with kids saying, is he a groomer? Is this Ron the groomer? Right? This is, there's, no, there's, no, there's no bottom for Trump. He will go wherever he has to go to destroy his opponent. Good luck to you, Ron. And I, by the way, the best scenario for the Democratic Party is for DeSantis and Trump to wage war on one another while Biden just smoothly walks the nomination. He's got no challenges. Bernie's not running. And then, and then DeSantis beats Trump narrowly. This is the best scenario for the Democrats. DeSantis beats Trump very narrowly. Trump, what does he do? He refuses to concede defeat, says it was stolen, and either tells his followers to stay at home, not vote for DeSantis, or he runs a third party. Either way, Biden wins. So actually, that's the best scenario for the Democratic Party if there's a Republican civil war between Trump and DeSantis. Is Trump more- Bad for America, but good for- Biden's re-election prospects. Is Trump more intelligent than sort of liberal commentators and pundits give him credit for? Because you just said a moment ago that he destroyed 16 yeah. other... I mean, these were serious yeah. political heavyweights, some of them. I mean, he is that intelligence? I don't know. I'm, I'm wary to use the word intelligence. Is he smart at beating people up? Yes. Is he good at lying? Yes. Is he intelligent? I mean, he is seriously one of the most ignorant human beings I've ever come across in my life. And I'm not just talking about politics. I mean, it's hard. You know, we had George W. Bush, who was clearly smarter than people thought, but was also very ignorant. Trump is on a different level of just, you read some of the memoirs from people who worked with him. You read some of the books that have come out. <laughs> Whatever you think about Trump, it's always worse. Mm. Whatever you think, it's, it's, he always, it's always more inappropriate. It's always more ignorant. I mean, this is a man who turns up in France and asks his chief of staff, a retired Marine general, like, which war is this? What side were we on? What happened at Pearl Harbor? Right, this is just basic stuff that he doesn't know. And I always, somebody asked me earlier, like, if you had interviewed Trump, what would you ask him? And I always say, I wouldn't get into like election rights and wrongs, opinions, racism. I'd just ask him fact questions. What's the WHO? What does NATO stand for? Are you plan to go to Wakanda? I just <laughs> just plan to go to Wakanda. I'd love to know what he said. <laughs> they love you there. They love you there. He'd say, I'm making a trip tomorrow. Like, that's the only way to expose the ridiculousness of this man. But think about Aaron, what a failure of the media it was that a man that ignorant, that conspiratorial, that unhinged was able to win the presidency and then last four years without anyone really nailing him down on any of that stuff in any interview or press conference. I mean, he is Teflon in so many ways. I mean, he's the most Teflon politician since Tony Blair. I mean, if, if COVID hadn't happened, he could have got reelected. I think. I think he, he probably would have. would have been right. And I think this is what we say. Oh, Bernie wouldn't have beaten Trump. I don't personally. I think both Trump, um, Bernie, and Biden would have struggled to beat Trump just because of his employment numbers and whatnot. And incumbency. Yeah, and, and exactly, exactly. And I think, and equally with COVID, I think both of them beat him. And I, I, I feel like not enough people talk about this. Like, well, he does. Trump, <laughs> Trump tells everyone, if it hadn't been for COVID, we had the best employment record. And ah, um, no, he, that's what I'm saying. Don't write this man off. A because. He's defied us all many times before. B, he's basically the leader of a cult, and we know what cults can do. And C, 
because it's a two-party system. First past the post, two-party system, electoral college, hardcore partisanship. That means it's very, there's a handful of votes in it, right? You know, it's, what was it? In, in 2016, it was if, uh, was it 70,000, 80,000 votes had gone the other way? Hillary would have been president in three swing states. Like, that's how close it is. It's a handful of voters in a handful of states. That's what it comes down to. Nobody cares about California or New York or even Florida or Texas. It's Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, a few thousand votes. Of course he can win. Do you find him entertaining? I do. It's about, wow, that's a really big admission. Wow. It is about, I'll, say, I'll, say, I'll say two things, right? Number one, when I was covering Trump for the last few years, I used to look at UK politics and wow, you got Brexit and we've got Trump. It's so depressing. Then I think, at least Trump is entertaining. Brexit is so dull. Like, I'd rather kill myself than have covered Brexit for the last few years. I'd rip my eyeballs out with a spoon. But he is more entertaining. Racist, fascist, but he's more entertaining. Fascists tend to be more entertaining. And then you look at DeSantis. And I actually think that's another reason he'll lose. And I talk in the book about the power of humor. Like Trump, whatever you think about the guy, he knows how to make people laugh. Sometimes you're laughing at him. His followers are laughing with him. DeSantis is a kind of charisma-free zone. Mm. Like, good luck to you. And I talk in the book, it's very important to have that charisma, the humor, the authenticity. Whatever you think about Trump, and I loathe the man and I loathe his politics. I've been sounding the alarm on Trump for many a year, but he understands how to connect with his people. He knows how to rouse them up. He knows what buttons to push. He knows how to perform. You watch those rallies. It is very Lenny Riefen style. And Lenny, you know, it, it, it works. There's a reason why fascists are good at rallies. Are, are there any politicians in the United States better than him at connecting with people? So like people, the left like say, oh, you know, AOC or whatever. But is anybody on his level when it comes to connecting millions of working class Americans? Hold on. I'm, I, I'm in gonna, an irrational way. Not in a, not in a rational way, because obviously Biden... Also, I'm going to push back on the working class Americans. Blue, I mean, that's blue a bit cop. of a myth. But I think that's still a bit of okay, a myth. Okay, middle America. None of those words. His 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 white base is a, is a, is a multi-class, multi-income base. It, it, he likes okay. to portray this white working class champion. The numbers don't quite support that fully. Partly. Um, but... No, in his rallies, no, no one has, no one can do what he does in his rallies and no one should really want to do. Even in the book, when I talk about the importance of emotion, I say that the left liberals, they, they need their own emotional argument. I'm not telling them to activate the same dark feelings that Trump activates in his base, you know, paranoia, anger, grievance, victimhood. But you do need some kind of emotional appeal. Is there a, a politician of the left who can inspire hope, um, solidarity um, in that same way? Probably not. I mean, Bernie's come closest. Uh, but it hasn't been able to scale it up for sure. Uh, but, you know, one of the most powerful bits of rhetoric on the left was Bernie Sanders' speech in Queens um, a few years back in the 2020 race when he said everyone, it was, it was, a, it was a masterpiece of, uh, of rhetoric when he says, I want you to look at the person next to you. And I, do you know that person? Are they a stranger? Now ask yourself, are you willing to give up everything you have to help that person, to have the same thing that that person has of yours? It was a very, very powerful moment, right? But we need more rhetoric like that. Uh, AOC is a very skilled communicator. She is one of the best uh, on the left globally. Uh, but again, can you scale that up? America, as we just talked about, is a huge country, very diverse. Not everything that works in New York works in Texas. Not everything that works in Texas works in Wisconsin, et cetera, et cetera. Very hard to find a politician like a Barack Obama who mm. can transcend all of that. Mm. I mean, I, I saw Sanders. He was over here a couple of weeks ago. I'd never seen him in the flesh, and I have he's to. He's grumpy. Oh, but he's bloody good. Yeah, as a, as a, and he turns it on, especially oh, in interviews. He's very wow. good. With, he's very good with journalists, and I don't. He did an interview recently with Margaret Brennan. Yeah, and uh, he called out, you know, the media's inability to cover inequality, and it was it was superb. But in the US, he's without being rude to him or disrespectful. He's an also ran. You know, he was never. He never won a nomination. He never. You know, he's never won a president. He's never run in a presidential election. And yet, you compare him to politicians in this country. You know, his oratory, like his ability to connect with a big crowd. I, I the only equivalent I can think in this country. And it's incredibly sad to say. I'm talking about Blair thirty years ago. I'm talking about today or recently even. The only equivalent is probably Nigel Farage or Boris Johnson. Not to the same extent, obviously, but I'm trying to think of a politician which can make thousands of people really happy yeah. and energized, and they're few and far between in this country. And I certainly yes. don't, I don't see it with Labour. In and most actually, countries, I mean, especially on the left. Well, this, is, this brings me to the next question, which is Keir Starmer. So Keir Starmer's clearly an intelligent, reasonable man, amazing... Former C prosecutor. Yeah, great CV. But the arguments you say in this book about... He's a, he's a technocrat. He's a technocrat. Do you think that's going to hurt him in the next election? Uh, it would if it was a normal election, but your election is not going to be a normal election, is it? It's going to be an election that comes after Liz Truss and Lettuce 
comes after economic catastrophe. Uh, he's a, he's the right man in the right time. He's a lucky he's a lucky man. Keep stuff. I keep thinking of Tony Blair in '97, which is not a good analogy fully, but it's partly a good analogy in the sense that after 18 years of Tory rule, after everything that happened with ERM, etc., John Major was going to lose that election. Right? There was no scenario in which John Major was going to win the 1997 election. John Smith would have beaten him. Mm. He wouldn't have got a 170 seat majority, but he would have beaten him. Tony Blair beat him with a much bigger majority. I think whoever is Labour leader would be beating the Tories at the next election. Um, so he's very lucky that he's the Labour leader. Now, whether he wins it big or small, I don't believe that poll. The polls are show 50 to 25. I refuse to believe those are real. But he's clearly on course for victory. So it doesn't really matter right now. And also he's up against Rishi Sunak, who makes Ron DeSantis look like a mm. charismatic figure. I mean, Rishi Sunak is one of the most dull people I've ever come across in British politics. Like I I, I want to kind of give him a chance and I'm, I can't, I can't listen to him for more than a minute or two, if that. It, it, again, but he, he's, a, he's a right man in the right time for his party. They don't care. You know, he's the third man in a row. So I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. Will the, will the rhetorical difference make a difference at the next election? Again, it all depends on circumstances, right? It depends what shape the economy is in. Uh, is there a populist argument to be made on either side? Uh, you know, Brexit was a very much, Brexit, unlike the next general election, was one where rhetoric really mattered, mm. where messaging really mattered, where the Brexiteers were able to really rouse people's emotions and talk about sovereignty and freedom and liberty and those kind of really um, powerful concepts, while the anti-Brexit, the Remainers, were all like, let's talk about trade statistics. And you're like, oh, great. It's really going to get people to the ballot box. So that, for me, that was a real contrast. And it was the same time as Clinton and Trump. The same thing was happening in America with Clinton and Trump. Technocrat against the populist. Do you think they've learned their lesson? No. No. I, I, they, they, in America, the Democratic Party are getting better. I've seen better ads. I've seen politicians more willing to throw rhetorical punches. I've seen them more willing to use the F word, fascism, which they ran from in the past. But no, overall, they're still not anywhere where I'd like them to be. They're still always going to be like, well, let's talk about kitchen table issues. Let me talk about the price of gas. You know, the, the default position for a Democratic Party politician or a Labour Party politician is to immediately start about the cost of policies and what we're going to do. And here's our laundry list of policies. People don't vote on that basis. People do not go to the ballot box and say, here are seven right-wing policies. Here are seven left-wing policies. This is what it will cost me. And now I will vote as a rational calculator. That is not how human beings act. Mm. We all know that. And yet, for some reason, the liberal left still has this bureaucratic, <clears throat> managerial, technocratic approach to politics, which I don't know whether it comes from kind of liberal arts education. It comes from legal backgrounds. Like, I will offer you rational evidence. I, I, let me give you one more poll. Let me give you a peer-reviewed paper, and I will win you over. And that is literally not, as I say in the book, it's not how human beings operate. You know, you have to appeal to people's hearts, not just their brains. You have to, be able to, you have to use emotions, not just facts. You have to tell stories. Where are the storytellers? You want to come back to our politicians? Where are the people who can tell great stories? Mm. That was one of the most gutting things for me with the Labour Manifesto in 2019. Many of the policies I liked and agreed with, but unlike 2017, there was no big story. There was no big feeling. On Brexit, frankly, it was one of the most insane political because it was so sophisticated. and It, it was like an algorithm, right? <laughs> you know, you had to, be, you had to have a sort of... A, 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 MA in sort of political theories, even work out what was going on. And, and like you say, there was, well, if we do this policy here and we'll add this policy here, it means we can get, um, yes, you know, women who actually they'll retire in a few years time, you know, the, the certain subgroup in this country because they moved the retirement age up and then well, moving chess pieces around and it, yeah. just, it collapsed. It's just, it's just not how people are. You've got to meet people where they are. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book because, we, you know, one of the reasons, there are a lot of books out there on rhetoric, on persuasion. You go into bookstores, there's a dozen books, go in the business section, go in the life. There's loads of books about how to persuade, how to negotiate, how to speak. A lot of them are abstract theory. A lot of them are written by academics. I wanted to write a real world book based on my own experiences and saying, this is how the world works. Trust me, I've done it. And mm -hmm. here are my examples. So this was like a, so this was a big debate in the UK amongst, you know, the media. They were saying, look, we've got our first BAME um, prime minister in number 10. Shouldn't we be proud? Shouldn't we be happy? My colleague, Ash Sarkar, um, her family comes from Bangladesh originally. I know you're of British, you're British Indian, you're an Indian heritage. Were you proud when Rishi Sunak, a fellow man of South Asian heritage, entered Downing Street? You said this is a brilliant moment for our democracy. He's also a fellow Oxford studio. I believe he's a year below me at Oxford, but I didn't know him. Um, was I proud? I wouldn't use the word proud, but I was impressed. I was, 
happy is not the right word. I got I got attacked on social media when I said when I said something about Sunak because people on the left in particular got very upset, saying you shouldn't say anything positive. The fact that he's brown is irrelevant. I don't quite buy that. I think you've got to compartmentalize a bit. So the brown person in me is both proud, to use your word, and disappointed in Rishi Sunak. I'm proud that a brown person, an abstract brown person, is prime minister of the UK. Of course, I, I grew up in the 1980s getting the P word thrown at me in the playground, right? I could never have imagined at that time that the prime minister of the United Kingdom, of the country that had an empire around the world, would be a brown dude. And not just a brown dude, a brown dude not from the Labour Party. The Conservative Party chose the brown dude. Wow, right? For me, that is worth acknowledging, noting. You don't have to applaud, but it's definitely a good thing in abstract. Now, specifically, am I disappointed in Rishi Sunak? Yeah, I hold brown people to a higher standard on issues like immigration. It annoys me more when a brown person is anti-immigration than when a white person is. So when I see Braverman and when I see Sunak pushing this horrifically far-right agenda, anti-migrant, anti-refugee, it pisses me off. The, the drawbridge mentality, we're here or our parents are here, no, nobody else. Um, so on the one hand, I am, you can't, I, I, I'm going to say something that's going to piss people off, but you can't just be like, who cares if he's brown? It only matters what he does. That's a great soundbite. The reality is it does matter. Symbolism matters in politics. It matters in the, in the world. It matters that the UK was able to have a brown leader. It matters that the US was able to elect a black president. Was Barack Obama great for black people? No. But was it a good thing that America finally said, hey, we can have a black? Is it bad that America doesn't have a woman president? Yes, it's bad. Would Hillary Clinton be a great for women? Not necessarily, but it would have been good to have had a woman president. So I think we've got to be a little bit more nuanced to be able to unpack these things and say, it's a good thing that a brown person is prime minister of a country like the UK with its history of racism, colonialism, empire. Is Rishi Sunak doing a good job for brown people? No. It goes to what Gary Lineker was saying as well with um, how these were comments he made at the start of the week. You know, proposed government legislation is reminiscent of 1930s Germany. The only criticism I'd have of that is that, well, it isn't like 1930s Germany in so much as there's not, there's not a, a racially supremacist sort of political cast. To be fair, Lineker said, said the language yeah, 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 no. is not dissimilar. And, the la and he's right on the no, language. No, he is right. He is right. But I, and I, but I think it's an important difference. And oh, actually, yeah. we shouldn't be blind to it on the left because it, it, it means we might let them get away with a hell of a lot, which is this time around, it is not necessarily about racial purity. And there's a concern that a brown or black home secretary, a brown or black prime minister is probably going to get a lot more permission to be extraordinarily violent to minorities That's than true. a white one would. And I think I think the left kind of sleeps on that a bit. You know, history rhymes, but it doesn't repeat. But one thing I would also say on the left here is if you take if you unpack left and liberals, I do worry that the class race thing is bumping against each other in a bad way. So for example, the liberal, and this is very all very crude, but just to make the point, the liberal might say, we need a woman. We need a black person. We need a brown person to tick a box. And I, I'm, I'm reducing these arguments on purpose. The leftist might say, it doesn't matter that he's brown, he's the posh rich kid. It's more important that it's someone who's of our working class, someone who represents ordinary people, who's not out of touch one percenter. Now, both my point is both those things can be true. In an ideal scenario, you would have a person who is both. But my worry is, is that both sides are kind of retreating into a kind of, I see the advantages of both. It frustrates me. There shouldn't be an argument on this. It shouldn't be like, it doesn't matter that he's brown. No, it does actually. It doesn't matter to those of us who are brown. Diversity and representation matters in abstract. And on the other side, it's, well, it, all that matters is that he's brown. No, actually, no. It also matters what policies they have and whether they're in touch with the, with people and whether they represent people other than some narrow you know, section of society. So I, I just worry that there's unnecessary tensions that exist there, especially on the race-class debate, which shouldn't exist. Are you a left populist? I think people should be left populists. I think, uh, I wouldn't want to define, I don't know how I'd define myself in that way. Because it seems to be a rhetorical style, if nothing else. And that's that seems yeah, to I be what you're so. arguing for. I, I, okay, so on that basis, a rhetorical style, then yes. I think it's a useful rhetorical style. I think it's a morally um, good rhetorical style. So, you know, the point I make, so go back to what we were talking about earlier about the emotions and anger, right? Bernie is very good at this. Let's take Bernie Sanders, a left populist. People in America are angry. People are angry. You can't deny that fact. People are, there's no way you, can, you can't go in and you can't go in and throw statistics and say you're not angry, right? People are angry. So what do you do with that anger? The right knows what to do with that anger. They say we'll channel it at trans kids, at Mexican migrants, at Muslim terrorists. We've got our targets at Black Lives Matter and Antifa. 
Democrats, liberals, don't know what to do quite with the anger. Bernie says, let's take the anger and channel it in the right direction. Let's channel it at Big Pharma. Let's channel it at the 0.1 percenters, the big banks. Let's channel it at the people who are price gouging. you at the pump. That makes more sense to me. And when Joe Biden does do that, every time Joe Biden plays footsie, nudges and winks with left populism, his poll rating goes up. Democrats do well in midterm elections. It's really interesting. It's like, it just, a, you can look at the trend. When was Biden most popular in America? When he passed the American Rescue Plan, which was the biggest investment in the American economy in modern American history, right? You go back to LBJ, FDR, it's that big a deal legislatively. It actually, it actually translates into not just people's pockets and bank accounts, but as you said, a story about we can do this, right? And, but then they always, as usual, there's always a countervailing force, the centrist, the moderates. But why? Why? Why so do it, they exist or why is there no, a No, no, why are they force? doing that? So I, I can understand, them, like, I can understand, for instance, in this country, people don't like Jeremy Corbyn momentum, et cetera, et cetera. That's one thing, park it. But it's strange to me that they don't look at the success of the right and they don't look at the limited success of the populist left and say, there's something we can learn from this. But it seems to me that the democratic establishment, particularly, to a lesser extent, the labor in this country too, still haven't learned that lesson. I don't I think a lot of them live in the past. Right. So there's always a kind of, what about Bill Clinton and Tony Blair? I think that's that's always there. Uh, they've got a kind of a slightly inaccurate reading of the past. Um, but I think it's changed. I mean, success breeds success. If Joe Biden does win again, then it will destroy a lot of myths that you can't, because you can't have it both ways. You can't portray him as this lefty president, as the right are, and as some centrists are, and then he wins as a lefty president. That's gonna, that's gonna, uh, you know, upset a lot of narratives. I also think, it, let's just go back to the grifters. A lot of these people are grifters. A lot of these people are all about making money. Like a lot of the, de you know, kissed in cinema. Let's talk about kissed in cinema briefly. Demo former Democratic senator from Arizona. The block, you know, the bane of Joe Biden's presidency. Mm. Blocked him on everything with her partner in crime, Joe Manchin. She blocked him on policies that she used to support. She took a crap load of money from special interests. She left the Senate in the middle of negotiations to go sit with her donors. Like if there is ever an example of like, this is Washington corruption that people hate in the pocket of donors, it's kissed in cinema. And she was a Democrat all these years. Finally, she admitted she's not a Democrat. She's gone independent, uh, independent of who, not her donors. So the question therefore is when she's coming out saying this is too extreme, we're going to the left, et cetera. She doesn't believe that. It comes up to, do you actually believe that stuff? I'd love to read her private text. Like, she doesn't believe this stuff. She is operating on behalf of her donors. It's manifestly clear. Her politics, her political trajectory has changed. She used to be in the Green Party. She used to be anti-war. Like, she's moved heavily. And it's not because of some great political realization. It's because that is where the money is. When she eventually leaves politics, I'm pretty sure where she'll end up, right? She will end up at a business chamber, a lobbyist group, et cetera, et cetera. So you've also got to do, you know, self-interest. You've also got to talk about a lot of Democrats they might think it's good for their party, but is it good for them? Is it good for their donors? Is it good for their post-political career? I mean, that's, it sounds obvious because it is. Would you ever go into politics? There was a time when I considered uh, going into politics. There was a time when I thought, oh, could I be a Labour MP? Oh, could I be the first Asian Prime Minister of Britain? Not Rishi Sunak. Um, there, were, there were times when uh, I narcissistically had such thoughts. Um, and then uh, being at the New Statesman, which is uh, as a political journalist, it, it was really revealing because you, you're up and close and personal, seeing all the stuff, seeing how the sausage is made. And it just didn't do it for me. I just thought, is that the life I want? Not sure I want that life. Um, pretty sure my wife didn't want me to have that life. And also, how long would someone like me last in politics, especially in Britain, maybe in America? <clears throat> in America, you've got space to be a, a senator, a governor, a mayor who's on your own. In party politics, like, how long would I last in a shadow cabinet? Hello, here are the talking points for this week. I'm not following that. You're fired. I resign. You know, it wouldn't last very long. I'm not one of these people who follows a script. I'm not known for being, just tell me what to say and I'll say it. So I've, not, I've never been that as a journalist. I don't think I could be that as a politician. I'm, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think you can survive as a politician unless you're willing to do, you know, bite your tongue, put the team ahead of yourself, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe in the US... Um, not that I plan to, just to be clear, but hypothetically, the US is a place where there's much more scope to run for a mayoralty or run for a governorship where you can do whatever the hell you want. You're not really bound by a shadow cabinet responsibility. Do you think that's quite dysfunctional, the UK system in that respect? Because this is something I don't really understand. In Britain, political journalists, when they were being confronted with the idea of mandatory selection with the Labour Party, they were saying, this is Stalinism. So well, hold on. 
the Republican Party and Democrats have, have open primaries yeah. in the United States, there is this very strange aversion to quite basic democratic norms in somewhere like the US, or, or, or even for that matter in Scotland or the SNP. Which is interesting because I have a long enough memory to remember, I remember chairing a debate of progress back in the day where oh. they were they were in favour of open primaries and there was there was a lot of talk about primaries there. So it wasn't even, it's not even a left-right thing no, per se. No, well, it wasn't. Well, it wasn't. But, I mean... I mean, yes and no to your question. There are a lot of advantages to parliamentary democracy when you see how the Kirsten cinemas operate of this world, where Joe Biden has literally no control over her Senate majority that cannot get her to vote in line with the party. Then you go, oh, we miss the whipping system of the British mm. House of Commons. Um, so in one sense, parliamentary democracy has an effectiveness and efficiency that doesn't break down in the same way that the American system is plagued by gridlock and egomaniacs holding up the entire thing on behalf of one donor or another. But yeah, obviously, you know, you and I as journalists in particular want people to be more free to speak out, to speak their minds. The most popular politicians with the public are those who don't follow the crowd, who do speak out. There's a reason why Boris Johnson eventually ended up as prime minister despite what? How many times he resigned from the front bench? Multiple times, three times over the last 20 years. Prior to getting the top job, he failed multiple times because it was worth it, right? He was playing a, a long game in a way, maybe wittingly or unwittingly, in that he was building up all that political capital as the man who says the unsayable, oh, the yeah. rogue. And that actually helped him in the long run. Yeah, it's something that I've been asked before. Oh, you know, you're in journalism. Would you like to go into politics? And the older I get, I just think, no, I, I quite like being honest. And the fundamental reality is, particularly in British politics, like you say, because of collective responsibility, the party system, the whip system, you, you just can't be honest about most things most of the time. Yeah. And it's really sad because I think the most talented people who are sort of intellectually curious just aren't going yes. to go into politics. They're just not going to. You're very right there. I think that is what turns a lot of people off, this idea that you're not going to be able to true to yourself. Even though, again, it's so interesting because, like, to go back to the Boris example, to go back to AOC, but the most popular politicians are the ones who are the most mm. authentic, are seen as not taking scripts or talking points. And I say, even Biden. Biden is not, I don't consider Biden to be a great orator, right? But there's something about his speech that makes him stand out. He's authentic. Nobody thinks he's spinning a line or reading from a pre-prepared script. Um, he, you know, sometimes he goes too off script for his own advisors, but that helps him. And that definitely makes people like him because they see him as a real human being, especially when he talks about grief and emotion given his own life story. So those are advantages that come. But you're right. There's, there's, it's almost two plus two is four, but no one's following it through in the political world. Hold on. All the people who are successful are the ones who speak credibly, honestly, authentically. Hey, but let's be robots. Even though the people over there are the popular ones. It's kind of weird disconnect, cognitive dissonance even. Who has been your most formidable opponent when it comes to debating? Who have you been blown away by? I go, wow, who is this person? That's a great question. Let me think. Let me think. I'm trying, probably forgetting someone, but... Um... So someone I've enjoyed, I'm not blown away, but someone I've found really interesting, challenging interview because they're not a baddie in my view. They're not some evil right winger, but there's someone I've wanted to press was Ron Klain, who's the out, who's just left as chief of staff at the White House. And he came on my show a few times, which was kind of cool to have the White House chief of staff agree to come on your show because he could go anywhere and take softballs. But he came to me and I pushed him on issues like Saudi Arabia and Biden and COVID and other issues that I thought the White House was failing on. And he is a uh, lifetime debater. He's the guy who trained Al Gore for the debates, Joe wow. Biden. He's the guy who Democrats go to get de debate advice. He's a super smart guy. He's also, just for your listeners and viewers, he's the guy who helped Biden uh, move to the center-left. He's the guy who welcomed in progressive groups like Sunrise, like the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He was the link man between the left and the Biden Oval Office. Uh, and him going now is a real blow to the left in America, I think. But he's someone on my show who always gave as good as he got. And I really enjoyed it because I would say like, ha-ha! And he would say, but Mehdi, you haven't thought about this. What about this that we did? And I always thought that was interesting. And I was and also, I just appreciate people who come back for more, right? Because the argument, Aaron, you hear often is, we can't do a tough interview because they won't come on the show anymore. Mm. And we need to keep our lines open. And that is true for some thin-skinned snowflakes. But actually, on the right and on the left, there are politicians who actually enjoy a good, a good, good rumble. And I've had people who come back on my show. You know, um, uh, Dan Crenshaw is a Republican congressman who I had on my show. We had a fight on Twitter, right? We were having a round. I said, come on my show, thinking he's never going to come on my I mean, He said, all right. And he came on. I can't stand his politics. I disagree with him on pretty much everything. But he's not an election denier. So that was my first test. You can come on the show. Uh, my first question was, do you accept Joe Biden as a president? Had he said no, I'd have ended the interview there. <laughs> but he comes and he said, yes. 
And then we actually had a really strong conversation on immigration at the border. We got into it for 15 minutes, which is eons in cable news terms. Most interviews are five minutes. We dropped the break and just went long. So I appreciate stuff like that. Yeah, I don't have to agree with the person, but I appreciate with just with the act of getting in the ring, as you said earlier, where you don't have to, where there's so many safe spaces, especially for the right and for people like the White House Chief of Staff, he can do any show, but he's saying, all right, I enjoyed that. He'll text me after saying, you know what? We didn't agree, but I enjoyed that. Good questions, tough questions. Do you want to come back? Okay. So that for me is like, that's a win for as a, as a broadcaster who does TV and do. I, I can say to people, you know, it's, it's best practice, right? You want to say, no, look, look, you can do it. You're not, the, yes, some people will never come back again. I don't think John Moulton's ever going to do an interview with me again. He left very unhappy. He's not going to come back. Do I care? No, I got what I wanted from that interview. But you know, that's a decision interviewers have to make. Is there anyone on the US right? We've talked about the grifters, the people who just want money. Is there anyone who you've encountered? It could be a policy person or let's try and keep it relatively high profile, I suppose. A policy person, a politician, or a celebrity, or a journalist, you think, you know what, they're actually really stand-up guy. Is there anyone out there? It's not Tucker Carlson, but do they exist? That's a good question. I want to say yes, because I don't want to be seen as this mad lefty partisan. But the reality is the GOP has literally excommunicated all of the decent people that existed. And, you know, they become never Trumpers. So they're not even considered conservatives. Um, if you say anything, you get completely purged. The irony of cancel culture. The greatest force for cancel culture in the world is the modern Republican Party, the modern American conservative movement. So are there people left who are true conservatives, loyalists, who are also decent stand-up people that I've dealt with? I want to say yes. I do want to. You go for a beer with, you know? I don't drink, but yes. Go sorry, out with. a non-alcoholic beer. Sorry, not alcoholic. That's quite alcohol to the, be I mean, look, I'll give him this. I was a huge critic of his. I'm still not a full fan of him, but clearly he's not a bad human being. And that is Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney clearly loves his family, clearly loves the country. I don't agree with his policies. I think he was far too late in coming out against Trump, but he did come out against Trump, did vote against him twice, got censured by his party, did call out um, this George Santos fraud when other Republicans wouldn't, did call out Tucker airing this selective footage of 1-6. Yeah, I mean, I was a huge critic of his in 2012 when he ran against Obama, but I think I think he's a, I think I think he's a, a not bad human being. So he would be the ideal Republican candidate in a you know if you were to oh, have a, I mean, this a is sanitized a, Republican. This is what the candidate. irony of the Republican Party is today. Mitt Romney, who was an extremely conservative right wing candidate for president in 2012, mm. is now a lefty in the eyes of the GOP. And Romney hasn't shifted, which tells you everything about the Republican Party, that their own former presidential candidate from just 10, 11 years ago is now seen as this crazy, lefty, liberal-loving, tree-hugging, uh, non-conservative, which tells you how batshit crazy and far-right the GOP has gone. That Mitt Romney is now some kind of moderate. Mitt Romney in policy positions is not a moderate, but everything's relative. So they have gone off a cliff. And look, I want to make an important point here because, it, you know, oh, you can't find a single... You're talking about high-profile people. Of course, there are. I've got people in, in my wife's family who mm -hmm. vote for Trump. Of course. Obviously, they're, they're good people. I don't have to agree with their politics. But my point about high-profile people is they're not, they've been run out of town. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't overstate this enough. I said at, at the beginning of one of my shows recently, the biggest divide in politics today is not left v. right. It's awful people versus not awful people. Because it's, you know, Mitch, I'll give you an example. Mitch McConnell recently fell, the Senate uh, minority leader, Republican leader who's hated by the Trump wing. Um, he's often compared to uh, a turtle. That's the running gag. He fell and hurt himself. A lot of people said best wishes to him. Of course, he's an old guy. Nobody wants him to get hurt. I can't remember who it was now. I'm having a mind block. Somebody on the MAGA right posted a video of a turtle falling down the stairs laughing. Like, this, this is not about what tax level you support or how many immigrants you want to come into the country, or whether there should be charter schools or non-charter schools. This is way beyond politics. These people are not good people. They're awful people. They're either, as I say, grifters or con men, or kind of racist and boors. And that's the reality. That's they, the Conservative movement in America has been hijacked by really, really awful people. And Trump has basically given permission for people to be their worst selves. Things that no one would ever say before, they say now. What was your read on the UK? Because obviously you were here really till the mid 2010s. You know, you look at data now, it's really interesting. Right before the global financial crisis, the UK, the US in terms of per capita wealth, broadly same ballpark, right? You know, I, I don't buy that the UK was ever richer because that was all basically, you know, the market cap of these massive banks, which were, you know, never yeah. 
they were never sustainable profits and it was never really a sustainable industry, et cetera, et cetera. But clearly something has changed in terms of divergence in the fortunes of countries, say, like Canada, the United States, Australia, and the UK. We're clearly on a 15-year so far um, trajectory of stagnation, economic, political, I think cultural. It's a real malaise mm. here. Yes, I feel it. I'm it, only here for a few days and I feel it. You feel it? I feel it. Every time I've come, last couple of times I've come, I've felt it. How do you feel when you come here then? What, what's the sensation you sort of... I, I, so when I first left, people would say to me in the media and friends and family, when are you coming back? We need you back here. Why have you deserted us? Come back. And now nobody says that anymore. People say, we don't blame you. Why would you come back? There's a real sense of like, where's this country going? The malaise is the right word. Um, and it, it, I don't think it's all to do with Brexit. I think Brexit's a big part of it. Um, but I think people are, it's hard to put your finger on what, you know, malaise, the word is such a word. It's like, what is the, I don't think it's one cause. I think there's multiple things going on. I do think for a lot of people in the UK right now, they feel it's getting smaller, more constrained, um, less part of the wider world. And you have a set of politicians who are trying to encourage that. When nonstop every day, the rhetoric you're hearing from the media and from politicians is shut it down, close it down, lock it off. Um, that you know, the immigration debate isn't just about vulnerable asylum seekers being demonized, which is what's going on. It's also about a story about your country and who you are and what's your role in the world. Um, and I think, you know, whatever you think of Tony Blair, and I'm, I, I'm a huge critic of Tony Blair's. Like he could tell a story about Britain and its place in the world. You'd have to agree with it, but he could tell a story about it. Um, and I think the current leadership of both political parties, all political parties, I don't think they have a story about what Britain's about. I don't think they have a clue. I think they're blind leading the blind. What, why do you think there's a blind leading the blind? Because well, where's the other? You talked about Keir Starmer. You, you follow him closer than I do. What's his vision for UK? What was apart from? No, I don't think he has one. And what's what's fascinating is you know uh, this is what. Ch chills me the most. I remember I was on TikTok a couple of months ago before they both went to prison. This is, you know, uh, Andrew Tate's brother, a guy called Tristan Tate. And he's walking around Luton and he said, that used to be a shop, it was open, blah, blah, blah. It's basically just, he's pointing at shop fronts that have been shut, shut down yeah. and rough sleeping on the street, addicts, et cetera, et cetera. Now I've got a very different read on all of that to him, both in terms of causes yeah. and solutions. But he's saying, this is grim. This is, this is falling apart. This is, yeah. you know, degenerating. And it worries me that a figure like him can say things which are obviously true. And then you have a political class in Westminster, Labour, Conservatives, and they say, our best days are ahead of us. Yeah. And I think you are so out of sync with the reality for most people in this country. And it's actually deeply concerning for me. And, I, and so it also leaves a vacuum precisely for the Tates, for the fascists. And this is what bothers me. And this is why the second chapter of my book, I made it all about how do you message in a way that connects with people's hearts? Because you cannot have a technocratic vision. You can't beat kind of a fascist vision of the future with a technocratic vision. Of the future. It's, not, it's just not the way. You have to beat it with your own compelling story and your own passionate, angry message. And I think you're right. Obviously, we can all look at something and say, that's bad. But what's causing it and what's solving it is very different. Um, the, the reactions from some on the centre-left for much of my adult life has been to say, you know, that Tate video... Let's meet them halfway. Mm. That's been the reaction. It's not, it's not even denying what's going on. They'll admit it's going on. They'll admit that people are angry about X, Y, or Z. And then they'll say, but let's just meet them halfway. And you can't beat fascism by meeting, it, by meeting it halfway. You can't compromise on these issues. And therefore, I'm saying, rec like you are, recognize what problems are out there. Recognize the very legitimate anger. But how are you going to channel it? And in what direction are you going to channel it? And what language are you going to use to channel it? People want to hear, Ber why Bernie? You said Bernie. Why Bernie? People like Bernie is because he speaks like an ordinary human being and he gets angry like an ordinary human being. And I say in the book, I have a whole chapter on how you need to stay calm in an argument, which is great overall. But sometimes a bit of moral outrage is very useful. It's very helpful. It helps you connect with people. But how dare you, sir, always goes a little way in making your point across. And we need a bit more of that. We need a bit more outrage. And I give the example in the book, one of the classic examples of where liberals lost the argument. 1988, George Bush Sr. is running against Michael Dukakis for president of the United States. Dukakis is the Democratic governor of Massachusetts, liberal Massachusetts. He's against the death penalty. Crime's a big issue. The moderator in the first presidential debate says, if your wife was raped and killed, would you still oppose the death penalty? Dukakis gives a two-minute, 360-word answer in which he talks about falling crime in Massachusetts, why the death penalty isn't a deterrent, why he's going to have a drug hemispheric summit and fund the DEA. <laughs> he does not address the fact 
that his wife was just raped and killed in this hypothetical, right? The audience at home want to see some passion from the man they're going to make commander-in-chief. Where is the anger? Where is his anger at the interviewer for daring to bring his wife into it? Mm. Where is his anger at this murderer? who he, he doesn't have to execute him, but he can be angry about the fact that there's a guy out there who just killed his wife. And his campaign manager said later, she said, as soon as I heard him say that, I knew we'd lost the election. Because people wanted to see, had, did he have some heart? They knew he was a smart guy. They weren't worried about his head. They wanted to know if he had a heart. And he showed he didn't. And I think that is always such a problem for progressives, for liberals, for leftists. And I, I keep banging the drum, like to go back to your point, yeah, left populism, fine, call it what you want, but do it. Final question. 10 years from now, are you optimistic, hopeful about the future of politics and society in both the US and the UK? Ooh, it's a good question. I don't know the answer. What is it, Gramsci? Pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will? I don't know. It's... My brain says no. My brain says I look at all the available evidence and I don't see how it gets better anytime soon. It might get better, but we, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I look at the United States as a real complacency, even now after everything with the state of democracy. Um, I look at, you know, just this week, you have Gary Lineker, a football ex-football player, sports presenter, says the bleeding obvious that this kind of language is reminiscent of 1930s Germany and people lose their shit, people lose their minds. What is going on? I mean, it's as plain as day that we are on a path towards authoritarianism and fascism across the Western world, that far-right parties are exploiting issues like immigration, diversity, changing demographics to do that. Where is the counter-narrative? Where is the concerted, it's a global, uh, by the way, trend. Where is the global democratic trend in response? You know, Joe Biden talks a good game about democracy versus authoritarianism, but where is it? Where is that on, you know, putting aside our left-wing, right-wing differences and having a common struggle for small-d democracy? I don't see it. It petrifies me. I was the guy in 2019 saying, next year, Trump's going to lose, but he won't accept defeat and he won't leave. And people said, ha, silly Brit, you're being hyperbolic. Secret Service will walk him out of the building. And then January 6th happened. It's like, oh, hold on. He didn't leave and he did incite an armed insurrection. 2024 is going to make 2020 look like a walk in the park if Trump's the candidate and he loses again. Um, they're not, you know, they're not going to go quietly if they even went quietly in 2021, in 2021. So yeah, I, 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 look, I look at all the evidence. I look at everything that I'm seeing. And I do feel sometimes like, you know, the, the, the emperor's clothes. I'm saying, I'm screaming. I'm saying, this is bad. And people are like, don't worry about it guardrails, institutions, that's hyperbole. And I look norms. at norms, norms, adults, grown-ups, adults in the room, all of that's beer. Trump gets a second term. I'm saying it now. You can do whatever hyperbole you want. If Trump wins a second term, American democracy is over. It's over. It's done. Finished. Right? It doesn't survive a second Trump term. Um, so that is that for me is a real problem. You might say that's an American focus case, but number one, if America goes down the toilet, the rest of the world goes too. And number two, it is a global trend. My parents are from India. I look at what's happening with Modi. I look at what's happening with Orban. I look at what happened with Netanyahu back in Israel. Uh, you look at um, Erdogan and Putin. And yeah, you look at the UK, you look at Le Pen in France. Everyone's like, oh, she lost. Are you kidding me? She should never have come so close in any normal, healthy democracy. France is a massive warning. Uh, to the rest of the Western world. And yeah, you, when, when the, when the brown-skinned Home Secretary of the United Kingdom refers to immigrants as invaders, which is neo-Nazi phraseology, terminology, if that doesn't scare the crap out of people, I don't know what will. Mehdi Hassan. Sorry to not end on a hopeful note, no. but I want people to get worked up. I'm trying to rouse you. Well, you know, if uh, future left-wing or let's just say progressive politicians and orators read this book, they might be part of the solution. It was a pleasure Thanks talking so. to you. Thank you so much, Aaron. Loved it. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.